want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Amen. We are in the course of an expository study through the book of Romans. We started, this is our sixth lesson, so we started some time ago. We're probably uh, on pace to maybe get through this in a year. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, we are on the 21st verse, and I'm going to do a little bit of of explaining and, uh, and, and laying the foundation before we get into that verse because so much of what we're into now builds on what we have already studied and what we've already looked at. And if you've been absent or you've missed a week or two or, or you haven't been around or haven't heard the lessons, then uh, I'm going to take a minute to kind of catch you up. So a few weeks ago, we introduced the theme of the book of Romans in verse 16. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a whole month's worth of preaching in that verse. And I'm not going to try to compact all of that into a few minutes of review. Just let, let it be settled that the gospel is powerful. It is the power of God. If you'll share it, it works. Amen? After that, Paul introduced two counterpoints that are revealed by the gospel. The gospel reveals, first of all, the righteousness of God, and secondly, the wrath of God. And then Paul begins after those statements of, of the revelation of the wrath of God, the revelation of the righteousness of God, he begins to build his argument now by developing our understanding of the wrath of God. Last week, we discussed the fact that all men, everybody, everywhere is subject to the wrath of God. No one is exempt. The wrath of God is revealed against anybody who denies the knowledge of God. And we spent a lot of time last week uh, talking about the fact that Paul makes the case that we are all responsible for knowing that there is a God because the very world in which we live, creation itself reveals to us that there is a God. Where there is a creation, there is a creator, amen. The planet, the universe, the world around you, the stars in the sky, they bear the fingerprints of God. The evidence that there is a God is very clear. It is very plain. And in order to ignore it, you have to make yourself blind to the truth. You have to cover, you have to intentionally cover up the truth in order to look at the world around you and say there is not a God. The world, creation itself, presents us with undeniable evidence that God exists. That means, and I'm not going to, that's as much of that case as I'm going to make this morning. Uh, we did record last week. I'll, it's not quite on Facebook yet, but it will be. Amen. And you can go back and listen to it. But that is much of that. That is as much of that case as I'm going to make this morning. But let it, let it be said then that we are responsible for knowing that there is a God. All people everywhere is, are, are without excuse. In order to ignore the existence of God, we've got to 
blind ourselves. We've got to cover our eyes. We've got to purposefully shut our eyes to the truth that surrounds us. We have to actively deny the truth. We have to actively deny that which is plain before us. And so Paul says they're without excuse. Nobody anywhere is going to stand before God and and effectively argue, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know there was a God. Paul said they are without excuse. And because of that, the wrath of God is revealed against them. Now, the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 1, will continue with the general theme of the wrath of God. This week, we're going to look at verses 21 through 23. And Paul will here give us the reasons. Last week was about the revelation of the wrath of God. This week is about the reasons for the wrath of God. Next week will be about the results of the wrath of God. That's kind of the progression of how things develop after the thesis statement. We saw the revelation of the wrath. Now we're going to see the reason why the wrath of God is poured out. And next week we'll see what happens because of the wrath of God. And that'll the, the, the results of the wrath of God will take us all the way through the end of chapter 1. So the first reason for the wrath of God is the failure on the part of mankind to recognize God. Although men knew God existed, they couldn't have not known God existed because the truth was evident before them. And although they knew God existed, although the evidence surrounded them, They chose not to acknowledge him. They chose, they decided to ignore his existence. And since they chose to ignore his existence, then the wrath of God is kindled against them. They they did that because they wanted to live the way they wanted to live. They wanted to act the way they wanted to act. They wanted to be able to conduct their lives however they wanted to conduct their lives. They didn't need to be. They didn't want to be accountable to any higher power. So they willfully blinded themselves to the truth that there is a higher power. They willfully concealed from themselves the reality that there is a God so that they were loose to do whatever they wanted to do, to live however they wanted to live. So their first transgression against God is their indifference towards God. They failed to worship Him, and they refused to give Him thanks for the many good gifts that He has given them. That's where we That's the case that Paul is going to make this morning. Beginning in verse 21, we'll read the whole passage and then we'll take it apart. Beginning with verse 21, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Okay, so we'll begin in verse 21, beginning with the first phrase, because that when they knew God. This is built on 
the argument that was made last week. This is built on the revelation of the wrath of God that we discussed last week. The word know here implies a personal experience. It is a definite statement that that this whole thing began with the knowledge of God. They knew there was a God. There was no way to deny the existence of God. They recognized the evidence. They saw it around them, and there was no doubt that there was a God because when they knew him, in order to incur the wrath of God, they had to ignore that personal revelation. They had to suppress the truth. They had to, and we saw the the verbiage last week, they had to put the truth down. They had to hold it back. They had to suppress it in their lives. It was evident to them. They could see it, but they had to ignore it. They had to push it aside. And what Paul is telling us, there's something built into the very heart of man that recognizes the existence of God. There's something built in the very being, the very creature that is man, that is driven by an urge to worship God. There's never been discovered in all of anthropology a culture of humanity, no matter how primitive it may be, that did not have an innate built-in desire to worship God. That's how we were made. That's what we were made for. That is our first vocation. That is our first calling. That is what God formed us for. He created us to worship. But not just to worship anything. He created us to worship Him. It is what we were made for. That desire has been infused into our very being. We are religious beings. We were made to worship. Amen? If man refuses to let God have that place of preeminence in his life that rightfully belongs to God, then he will put something else or someone else in that place because man will worship something. It's the way we were built. It is hardwired into our very being. So they knew God, but he goes on to say they glorified him not as God. They knew him, but they refused to glorify him. They had the knowledge of his existence. It was evident before them. You could not deny it, but they refused to act on that knowledge. What they knew was not reflected in what they did. They knew a great truth. They understood that there was a God. They recognized his majesty and his glory in his creation, but they did nothing with it. They refused to give him glory. This means a little more than just that they didn't honor God. They knew enough about God to know he deserved glory. They could see enough about God to recognize he was worthy of worship. But they intentionally withheld that glory from God. 
they intentionally withheld that worship from him. This is their first and main offense. If our first vocation, if our first calling is to worship God, the first and main offense was that they withheld that worship from God. They kept that from God. When they should have glorified God, when they knew that he deserved glory and honor, they refused to glorify him. They did not act on the knowledge of God that they had. In verse 18, last week we discussed the fact that Paul referred to these people as ungodly. That word taken from an archaic Greek word, which means literally they had no respect for God. They had no respect towards God. The offense is not that they didn't know to worship God. The offense is not that they didn't know to give God glory. The offense is not that they didn't understand that that was their first calling and their first vocation. The evidence of God was so glaring that it could not be ignored. The fact that he deserved worship, that glory belonged to him, was evident. It could not be denied, yet they intentionally chose not to respect God, to honor God, to glorify God. That's the offense. It, that's the reason for the wrath of God. They failed to do what they knew they should have done. They failed to give God the glory that they knew belonged to him. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We tend to define sin as doing something that we know is wrong. We tend to define sin as transgressing the moral law of God. We know lying is wrong because we know lying transgresses the moral law of God. And so everyone who lies will face judgment for it because they lied. They have sinned. The scripture doesn't make a distinction between big lies and little lies. It doesn't make a distinction between good lies and bad lies. It doesn't make the distinction between lies that were meant for good. It doesn't make an exception for lies that were meant for good. It's just a plain fact. If you lie... You transgress the law of God and you're guilty of sin. We understand that. That makes sense to us because we like to live by hard, fast rules. We, we want clearly defined lines and clearly delineated boundaries. We want to know what we can and what we cannot do. And we can understand when we do what we're not supposed to do that we've done wrong. But James extends the definition of sin into territory that is a little less clearly defined for us. He extends our accountability to righteousness. He said it is a sin to know that a thing is right, to know that you should do it, to know that it is the right thing to do and not to do it. 
You may not be lying. You may not have transgressed what you perceived as the moral law of God. You may not be guilty of crossing some clearly defined line established by the commandment of God, but if you know in your heart the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're as guilty as you would have been if you had lied. That's the principle of Scripture. And that's the principle that Paul is building on here. It's the same case that Paul is making. Their guilt stems from the fact that they knew. They knew that God should be glorified. They knew that he deserved their worship. They knew that he was worthy of the honor and the praise and the glory. They knew they should have been worshiping him. They knew that he deserved their reverence and their respect. But for their own selfish, foolish reasons, they refused to do what they knew was good. They refused to do what they knew they should have done. Because they knew that God deserved glory and they refused to give him glory, then they were guilty of a transgression against God just as clearly as if they transgressed some moral law that was laid out and clearly defined and commanded. That's the reason for the wrath of God. They just decided that they preferred their way over God's way. They weren't ignorant of God's way. They weren't ignorant of what they were supposed to do. They weren't ignorant of the need to glorify God. They just decided that they would ignore God's way. Their failure to glorify God is their root sin. It's the cause. It's what where it all begins. But it begins a downward progression into sin. And what we're going to see unfold the rest of this morning and into next week, and if, if, if possible, we may even go two weeks with that, and I'm not sure yet, but what we're going to see unfold in the rest of chapter 1 is the downward progression into sin. The next step in that progression is idolatry. Because they preferred their way over God's way, the next logical step was to invent their own religion, to make their own way, to make a way that seemed good to them, a way to appease their conscience and their guilt, a way to appease the fact that they're made religious, we're made to worship, we got to worship something to appease that innate desire and that drive, they create religion to take the place of God. It goes on and says, neither were they thankful. Let me get it in, in the text. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Let me say this now. We, we've made the case very strongly about the, the offense that was in not glorifying God. And, and this, neither were they thankful, is kind of tacked onto that as a part of that. And I really don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But I, I want to point out this. Not only did they not glorify God, but they were not thankful to God. And the result of that thanklessness is no different than the result of their refusal to glorify God. But what I want to point out is that Paul mentions 
this lack of thankfulness on equal footing with and in the same sense as their failure to worship God. It was as offensive to God that they were ungrateful for the many good gifts that he had given them as it was that they failed to glorify him. The two are mentioned in the same sense, in the same setting. My wife and I have sat and talked with many people in various states of hardship and trouble in their lives. And one of the things that we consistently do is we ask them to stop for a moment and find some reason in their life to be thankful. Usually when we're in my office together, it's not because you're thankful. Usually whenever we sit down together, and me and my wife and whoever it is, it's, it's, we're not there because you want to give God glory and honor and praise and thank him for all the goodness. We're there because there's problems. We're there because there's hardship. We're there because there's trial. We're there because some circumstance is just about to overwhelm you because you don't know where to turn and you don't know what to do. But one of the things we try to make, the points that we try to consistently make is that no matter how bad it is, no matter how grievous the circumstances are, no matter how terrible the situation is, there's something in your life that you can be thankful for. There's something, and not just one thing, there are thousands of things in your life that if you would take the time uh, to think about and, and dwell upon, you've got a reason to praise him. Uh, you've got a reason to thank him. Uh, you've got a reason to magnify his name. You've got a reason to give him glory. It doesn't matter if the sun doesn't come up in the morning. It doesn't matter if hardship and trial are your constant companions. In the middle of the worst of your circumstances, you have a reason to be thankful. And when you allow your hardships and your trials to stifle your thankfulness to God, you're guilty of the same kind of trespass that Paul is talking about here. They didn't glorify him and they weren't thankful. They didn't glorify him and they didn't get what they did. What, what you do whenever you allow your hardships and your trials to rob you of your thankfulness towards God, what you do is you exalt your hardship. You exalt your circumstance. You glorify the situation over God. Does that make sense? Now, that's not saying that you don't have a reason to be discouraged. That's not saying that when we sit down in our, my office together, there's not really real life issues that need to be dealt with. That's saying that you can't afford to let those discouraging things rob you of the simplest of human duties. Give to God the glory that belongs to him. Give to God the thankfulness uh, that he deserves uh, in every situation. Often the focus is on the negative and the only point there is to turn it back to the positive and say, we understand that there are great negative things. We understand that there are terrible things going on. But in the middle of it all, let us shine a little light on the fact that, it, that God's still worthy, that there are still good things in your life. There are still things in your life that are thank-worthy. Amen? If you determine in your heart that you will glorify God, 
and be thankful to God regardless of what is going on in your life, you'll discover the rich provision and blessings of God even in the darkest hours of your life. If you'll make up your mind, I'm going to start every day with a list of things that I should be thankful for. You'll find it won't do away with the trouble. It won't do away with the hardship. It won't do away with it. But what it will do is it will introduce the glory of God into your circumstance. It will introduce the blessing, the presence of God into your situation. It won't shelter you from your bad times. It won't exempt you from the trials. But the blessing of His presence will be a comfort to you in the middle of your situation. When we do that in my office, all we're trying to do is introduce the blessing, the presence of God, the understanding this too will pass. And the same God who was God before this started is going to be God when this is long forgotten. And I'm going to carry with me the testimony that, yes, I went through a valley. Yes, I went through trouble. Yes, despair came upon me. But I never once gave up my praise. I never once stopped being thankful to God. I remembered the Lord in the middle of my despair. Amen. It goes on and says, but became vain in their imaginations. Became vain. Their thinking became vain or empty. The word vain in today's English means proud. It means haughty. It means uh, I'm all full of myself. But the Greek word doesn't convey that idea at all. It refers to that which is done in vain or that which is futile, that which is without result or success. It refers to not prideful thinking, but an unsuccessful attempt to do something or to be something. It is futile thinking. It is hollow thinking. It is empty thinking. Man has the incredible capacity to imagine, to dream, to conceive new ideas, to invent things. But all of that intellectual power in the absence of the worship of God, becomes vain. It becomes hollow. It becomes empty and fruitless. They channeled that energy into an effort that was vain, something that they supposed would set them free from the sense of guilt that came from the knowledge that they should have worshipped God, they should have gave God glory, the glory that he deserved, but they did not do that, so they, they turned their imagination towards inventing religion, inventing a way that they could appease themselves, not the worship of God, because that's the thing they refused to do, but instead the worship of other things to appease their conscience, to assuage the guilt that rises from the inner understanding, that inner desire to worship. So mythology, idolatry, all kinds of humanism and human-created religions grow out of man's inner 
need to recognize some power in the universe as being greater than himself and to worship that coupled with man's refusal to give that glory and honor to God. And so he turns his imagination towards making a substitute for God, making something that he can worship other than God because man has to satisfy that basic human desire to worship. Man has to satisfy that built-in desire to give glory to something greater than himself. So he chooses vanity or futility to replace God. In Acts chapter 14, verse 15, Paul uses the noun form of the same word, the verb here, becomes a noun there to describe the idols that men worship. He calls them vanities. They're unreal. They're fake. They're foolish. They are the product of vain imagination, and they're unprofitable. They can't do anything for the foolish men that worship them, but they represent the next step away from God. They represent the next step in a descending spiral into sin. First man refused to glorify God and give God thanks, and then man turns to glorifying something other than God. First man denies God, then man replaces God. That's the next step in the process. Then it goes on and says, and their foolish heart was darkened. Darkness settled over the heart of man. Man chose to ignore God. Man refused to acknowledge God. He turned his back on the light of truth. And as a result, he relegated himself to walk in darkness. The word translated as foolishness means without understanding. It doesn't reference ignorance. We've already seen that Paul has laid out the case that they're not acting out of ignorance. They knew God. It does reference their failure to think right, their failure to think correctly about moral issues. They knew they should have glorified God, but they refused to do so. And when they did, their heart was darkened. When they did, their thinking became foolish. They no longer think the way they should think. They no longer see things the way they should see things. They no longer understand things the way they should understand them because they removed the knowledge of God from their frame of reference. Their very thought process has been shrouded in darkness. They're like blind people stumbling around in the dark. They're, they're shrouded. In a single verse, this very pivotal and powerful verse, Paul has described both the condition of humanity and its source. We live in a world that has been enshrouded in darkness. We live in a world that is stumbling around in darkness trying to find something to replace God. That darkness comes from humanity's refusal to glorify and give thanks to God. Because of that, their very imaginations are evil. Their very 
thought process is tainted. Where they should have been conceiving ways to serve God, where they should have been conceiving ways to worship God, where they should have been conceiving ways to be in the service of God, they now conceive ways to dishonor both God and themselves. That's the progression of sin. And what is about to unfold before us in the rest of the chapter is the downward progression that's set in motion by these darkened hearts. Verse 22 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In the Greek, the words rendered wise and fools are at opposite ends of the spectrum of the standard of measurement for people. Wise is as high as you can go on one end, and fool is as low as you can go on the other end. Paul is saying that because the people have rejected God, they are exactly the opposite of what they think they are. They think they're wise. They're proud of themselves. They're puffed up. They're they're proud of their genius and their creativity. But in truth, they are fools. The Greek word for fools is the Greek word from which we derive our English word moron. God called them a bunch of morons. They're fools. They think they're wise, but they're fools. The point here is simple. Their hearts are so darkened that they see wisdom as foolishness. Their hearts are so darkened that they see foolishness as wisdom. Their hearts or their thought process is so perverted and twisted that they see bad as good and they see good as bad. They will laugh to scorn those who put their faith in God, but they have the audacity to put their faith in vanity and futility. In the name of wisdom and enlightenment, they become fools. That's a pretty powerful statement and a pretty good description, again, of the world in which we live that is shrouded by darkness, darkened hearts. Verse 23 says, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So in their foolishness, they exchange the glory of God for idols. God's glory, he says, is incorruptible. It's not liable to corruption or decay. It never fades away. It never passes. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it will not change. But in their foolish, darkened minds, they have traded God's glory for man-made idols that are liable to decay and corruption that break down over time. The, the end result of trying to turn foolishness into wisdom is that they abandon God in favor of inferior things. The only one who is worthy of worship is neglected. And worship is instead given to mere images that don't deserve worship. They have abandoned the real God. And they have exchanged him for fraudulent, fake, religious images. 
that's the height of vanity, folly, and darkness. This abandonment of God in favor of inferior objects of worship is traced in a descending scale. Mortal man is the first substitution. The creator is forsaken in preference for the creature. They, they forsake God, instead worship what he created. They start with an image made like to corruptible man. But then they descend downward from there to birds and then four-footed beasts and finally all the way down to creeping things. The descending scale shows the successive stages of their moral decline. They start by refusing to worship God and they end by worshiping the unclean reptiles that crawl on the face of the earth. They neglect the Creator. And instead, they exalt the lowest of his creations. That's the progression that you see. Would you stand with me? In the town hall in Copenhagen, there stands one of the world's most complicated clocks. It took 40 years to build it. It was built at a cost of more than a million dollars. It has 10 faces. It has 15,000 parts, and it is accurate to two-fifths of a second every 300 years. The clock computes the time of day, the day of the week, the months, and the years. The movement of the planets for 2,500 years are depicted by the clock. There are some parts on that clock that only move once every 25 centuries. And while it is enormously impressive, and while the clock serves faithfully for more than the lifetime of any person alive in this room, the two-fifths of a second that it loses every 300 years is still a problem. Every 300 years, someone has to tell the clock what time it is. The atomic age has come closer to solving the problem. The cesium atom clock is used to define the second today. It is the basic unit of time in the international system of units. Cesium-133 atoms are bombarded with microwave radiation, which generates an energy within the atom. The frequency levels associated with that energy generation are used to calculate time to an accuracy level of about plus or minus one second in one million years. But still, every one million years, somebody has to tell the clock what time it is. The interesting thing is that in all of our wisdom, in all of our learning, in all of our knowledge, the most precise clocks we can build are still dependent on somebody to tell you what time it is. They're man-made. And by virtue of that fact, they're subject to the same corruptions that we are subject to. There is only one incorruptible. There is only one 
incorruptible state. But man, in his foolishness, has exchanged corruption for the incorruptible. Listen to me, friend. If we, in all of our wisdom, cannot create a clock that consistently keeps time, it is foolishness and folly to think that we can conceive of anything in our lives that can replace God. We can't even keep the time. How are we going to keep track of our lives? You have a God-sized hole in your heart, and nothing will ever fit that but God. Nothing in this world can satisfy that inner desire that was built into you from your very creation in your mother's womb to worship God to be in fellowship with God, to walk with Him, to know Him, to know His will for your life. You can substitute a lot of things. You can put a lot of things in His place, but nothing will ever satisfy your soul. All of that stuff is going to fail. Somebody's still going to tell the clock ten minutes. But there is a God. can feel the deepest longing in your soul, that can meet the most hollow, empty place in the inside, that can stand with you through every trial and every trouble, that will fully satisfy your soul. This morning, could I ask you, would you let him be God in your life? Would you make a conscious decision? I will glorify God. If I don't get anything else right in my life, I will give him glory. If I don't get anything else right, I will give him thanks. That is the point. Now, I started the service by saying that is your your first vocation. That is your first calling that you would worship God. But you must understand that is the point of deviation from the will of God. When man left that vocation, when man left that calling, the end result is that he walked in darkness. That's why Peter said, that we should show forth the purposes of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Would you make up your mind this morning? Would you make a decision in this place today? Whatever else I do in my life, I will glorify God. I will give him thanks. I want to open these altars right now. I'd ask you, church, if you'd pray with me. I'm just asking you to come and find a place. And for a few moments on a Sunday morning, would you take the time to tell him, Lord Jesus,